If you were to type into Google, who is the best Western author? You'll get many lists of amazing authors and books. And the man we are talking about today is absolutely on every single list and is at the top of most. I visited his grave in Forest Lawn Memorial Park in the Hollywood Hills. And as I started my research, I mistakenly assumed that I might have known his story already. Maybe it's the picture on the back of his books. You know, cowboy that writes cowboy stories. But as they say, you should never judge a book by its cover. And as I dug into his life history, I was literally blown away. His life experiences ranges from cowboying, yes, but also from the boxing ring to the circus ring. What lies beneath or who, Louis L'Amour. and taphophiles, I'm your host, Lachelle. I'm back this week with an amazing story that I can't wait to tell you about. Thank you to Taylor and Marcus for taking over last week while I was down. I have had a cough for a really long time, so Taylor's going to have to um, edit a little bit of coughing and hopefully you guys can forgive the weird voice, but we're, we're going for it. I'm here with my own favorite cowboy son, Mr. Dallin. Howdy. Howdy, partner. I'm back. Let's go. Let's go. We're talking about one of your favorite authors today, Dal Louis L'Amour. Indeed. If you were to make your own list of favorite Western writers, who would be on your list? Well, Louis L'Amour, obviously, because we're talking about him. He's he's pretty darn good. Yeah. Zane Gray and yeah, and Larry McMurdy. Um, I'm actually reading one of his right now, and it's it's pretty darn good. Yeah, um, you're reading one of my favorite books. Yeah, Lonesome Dove. Lonesome Dove. I know quite a few from Louis. I've read a couple of his. Um, I've read um, Passing Through and one called The Warrior's Path. One called Hondo. Mm-hmm. And the other That's one, a famous one is. I don't remember what it's called, but it's about this really cool boxer dude, and he just beats everybody up with his bare hands. It's pretty tough. He takes that from some of his own experiences that we'll talk about here in a bit. My favorite is Down the Long Hills. Is that that a Louis? It's a Louis. Mm -hmm. But if, also I would add to that list, Charles Portis, I don't know if I'm saying that right, but he wrote True Grit, which I love the story of True Grit and the movies. Jack London, oh. I think he counts as a Western oh, writer. Oh, for sure. And Cormac McCarthy, who wrote All the Pretty Horses. Oh, okay, okay. That's, I love that one. That's cool, yeah. Yeah, I've read a lot of Jack London, too. He's, he's really good. Yeah, amazing. I went to the grave of Louis L'Amour in Forest Lawn Memorial Park in Hollywood. And the guest list, so to speak, in the cemetery reads like the Academy Awards. Betty Davis, Jean Autry, Lucille Ball... 
Bill Baxby, if you'll remember, Dallin wouldn't remember this, but he was the first guy to play the Hulk. Like like in the in the dorky 70s one? Yeah, yeah. which yeah. I loved. Yeah. Well, I mean, he actually played Bruce Banner and Lou Ferrigno played the Hulk. Oh, for sure, yeah. But, you know, that's how people know him from that series. Tom Bosley, dad in the Happy Days. Oh. In Happy Days series, which I don't think you have seen, I've but never you would love them. I've never watched that, yeah. Ted Cassidy, who is the guy that played Lurch in the series of the Adams Family, oh, that's like funny. the OG. Yeah. Sandra D, Ronnie James Dio, oh, the metal musician. Yeah, yeah. Clark Gable, Jimmy Stewart, Michael Jackson, Nat King Cole, Walt Disney. Well, heck, this is more like a Disneyland for Taffel Files, right? <laughs> exactly. It really is. Forest Lawn, it's so beautiful too, with, wait for it, yes. A lawn, and just as far as you can see, just lawns because it is the flat memorial markers. But there are some individual gardens and mausoleums. This place is huge, and they take their people's privacy really serious in the cemetery. So they ask for no photos inside the mausoleums which is kind of a hard thing to do when you're a taphophile and you're surrounded by so much amazingness. And you're also not allowed to go down some of the aisles of most of the mausoleums either. And so that's a little bit of a bummer because you can't go and actually see that person's crypt. I kind of like that, though. I, feel like I understand if it. If that was me, I'd kind of be like, you know, I'm all right with people not getting all in my, my burial site. Right. And... They really do take it serious and we can understand. But there is so much that you can see. There are so many sculptures and it's just a very beautiful place. It also is very much an active cemetery with many people still being interred and people coming to mourn their loved ones. And so the public service announcement for today is to remember that first that you know, our cemeteries are burial grounds, right? That they're a sacred space and they're a mourning space. And they're first there for the families of the people who have died, obviously. But then, you know, we can go and enjoy them too. But I think many people get a little too caught up in the excitement of finding, you know, a famous person's grave and kind of forget that next to them is a person that's actually still mourning their loved one that is buried nearby. So as you take your cemetery wanders, just remember to be thoughtful. And let me just tell you how I believe about this part of cemetery etiquette. It's not what everyone thinks about the cemetery, but this is my opinion. That first that they're there for the people that are mourning. So you can't go there at night? Badooch. <laughs> But enter the cemetery or graveyard like you're visiting the home of someone you're just meeting. Like you don't just tromp in and sit on the couch, throw your feet up. That would be rude. That would be a little rude. But at a cemetery, I enter quietly and I look around to see if there are any mourners or funeral services. And of course, if it's a really old cemetery, you probably won't see mourners or funeral services but I still like to kind of enter this way and just get the feel of the place try not to walk across the graves and stay to the paths when I can and I try not to touch the stones it's best 
When I take a soft brush to brush off dirt or leaves instead of wiping them away with your hands because it gets oils and things into the stone, I respectfully say their names and the dates. And even though, you know, I love to go to cemeteries and we joke about it being Disneyland, I'm actually very serious as I walk through and photograph the stones. And I'm thinking about the people that are there and who they may have been. I personally don't agree with taking ghost hunting equipment into the cemetery. I have seen some very respectful videos of people doing this, but I also have seen a lot of laughing, squealing, joking, you know, jump scares, and it just kind of rubs me the wrong way, Mm -hmm. right? I do leave an offering sometimes of flowers or small rock or coin, but, you know, we don't want to leave trash and... Please, for the love of all that is holy, do not sit on, lean on, or put your foot up on any of the graves or monuments. I have seen this, and it's just so cringy. I saw a man sitting on a vault-style grave, talking on the phone in Charleston Circular Churchyard, and I was leaving, and it was just all I could do not to just go back in there and ask this man to please haul his keister up and off of that 200-year-old grave. Oh, yeah, that's no bueno. We don't like that. I mean, you know, there, there's, there's like benches at the graveyard. No, you, you don't really need to sit on people's graves. That's, that's not like... I mean, 200 years the stone has been in the weather and everything else, and it's like... Really, you're going to sit on where the writing has been inscribed. It's just, ugh. I would haunt that man. I know, right? I would haunt him with all of my might. But I'm not really, you know, a confrontative person, so. Oh, no, I would haunt him. I didn't really, I I just didn't go and tell him off or anything. (laughs) But also in a recent video on TikTok, I saw these ghost hunters with their equipment, and they set them on the people's graves, like on the headstone. It just was so cringy to me. Dude, did you see that? Oh, crap. Dude, did you see that? Oh, oh no. Exactly. Can't stand those guys. Exactly. And they were just being goofy and asking rude questions. I just, oh, I just felt so embarrassed. So anyway, I'm not calling anyone out or trying to shame anyone, but let's do better. It's becoming more popular And it's funny because when I started this podcast, I just thought I was the weirdest person and was like, "Uh, there'll be some other weird people (laughs) that might enjoy these stories or enjoy the history stories. But it's becoming really popular in the ghost hunting and everything. And so it's not the same group of people that just love to go walk through a cemetery, right? The only spiritual witness those guys deserve is a hit over the head. (laughs) I know. So anyway, let's just remember that every graveyard that you'll ever enter lies someone's greatest love, lies, you know, their greatest loss, lies some mother's baby boy, lies someone's religious leaders. It's, you know, a cemetery isn't full of scary ghosts and ghouls. It is full of love and loss and stories. And so anyway, that's my little... That's my little gripe. That's my little PSA for today about going to cemeteries. I will now remove the soapbox from the room. (laughs) Thank you, Dallin. We may begin. (laughs) (laughs) Louis L'Amour's grave is inside one of those little private gardens, and it is 
just outside and to the right of the entrance to the great mausoleum where the Last Supper stained glass window is located. And we did talk about the cemetery on another time if you want more in-depth info about it. It's the episode called Goodnight Gracie. Ah. And it's about George Burns and his wife, Gracie. And so I, I talked more about it in that one. And we're definitely coming back, too, because we got to do one on Clark Gable. Oh, I know. And Jimmy Stewart. You haven't done one on Jimmy Stewart? Not yet. We need to. Anyway, yeah. I mean, just this cemetery alone. I mean, so, so, so many amazing stories. Anyway, we were able to see the grave of Louis L'Amour. And there's a short path to his little garden enclosure, but it is chained off. And so you can't walk down this path. But you can easily see his name inscribed on the plaque on the back a wall of that little garden. And the, his dates, which are 1908 to 1988. And beneath it says, Beloved Husband and Father. He was born Louis Dearborn Lamore on March 22, 1908. The youngest of seven children born to Dr. Louis Charles Lamore and Emily Dearborn Lamore. His mother had Irish ancestry, while his father was of French-Canadian descent. His father had arrived in the, in the Dakota Territory in 1882. His father was a veterinarian and farm machinery salesman, who anglicized his name from L apostrophe capital A Amor to Lamore, like capital L-A capital M-O-O-R-E. His home was Jamestown, North Dakota. Behind little Louis's childhood home lived his grandfather, whose name was Abraham Truman Dearborn. He had so many stories of the Civil War and the Indian Wars, and they were his own experiences. Two of Louis's uncles had worked on ranches for many years, and he first heard of all the history and adventure of the American frontier. Louis played cowboys and Indians in the family barn, which served as his father's veterinary hospital. But he also grew up in a household full of books. And this is just the way I raised you kids. And how I was raised is loving books and reading lots of books. Between home and the nearby Alfred Dickey Free Library, where his sister Edna worked as a librarian, Louis spent many long hours reading history and science, but also the works of Shakespeare, Charles Dickens, Robert Louis Stevenson, Jack London, Edgar Rice Burroughs, and others. Sounds like stuff you would read too, Dallin. Oh, for sure. And have read. Yeah. Where he explored through his imagination every adventure that he could get his hands on. He particularly loved reading the works of a 19th century British historical boys author, G.A. Henty. Lamore once said, quote, Henty's works enabled me to go into school with a great deal of knowledge that even my teachers didn't have about wars and politics, unquote. And even at a young age, he had the idea that someday he wanted to be a writer. By the beginning of the 1920s, Louis and his adopted brother John were the only kids left at home. The others were all out working and making their way, although a few siblings I read they had actually lost to death. Twin girls, Clara and Clarice, had died while they were infants, and then he had a very beloved sister named Emmy Lou, 
who was actually the one who had taught Louis to read, she had been lost to the 1918 epidemic of Spanish influenza. Oh yeah, that'll do it. The family were all very intelligent, well-read people, and all of them had played a part in Louis' education. And as the youngest in our family, you can understand how that was. Yeah. Everybody kind of rubs off and <laughs> helps teach you the different things that they learn. I mean, yeah, either that or you know, my older brother would just tell me stupid stuff to do, and you know, I, I did it. <laughs> so, you know, a bit of both. It's hard being the youngest of seven. You know all about it. Yeah. <clears throat> His father taught him about animals and how to work hard. Uh, Louis' adopted brother, John, was a spunky street fighter from New York and was an example of a natural survivor who was said to be quick of wit and sharp of tongue. Young Louis sounds like he had an idyllic childhood, and it was by many standards, but hard times finally uprooted the family. On his website, louislamour.com, it tells that after a series of bank failures ruined the economy of the upper Midwest, Dr. Lamour, his wife Emily, and their sons Louis and John took their fortunes on the road. They traveled across the country in an often desperate seven-year odyssey. During this time, Louis skinned cattle in West Texas, bailed hay in Pecos Valley of New Mexico, worked in the mines of Arizona, California, and Nevada, and in the sawmills and lumber yards of Oregon and Washington. It was in these various places and while working odd jobs that young Louis met the wide variety of characters that would later become the inspiration in all of his books. In Oklahoma, they met... Men like Bill Tillman, one of the marshals of Dodge City. Chris Madsen, who had been a deputy U.S. marshal and sergeant with the 5th Cavalry. And Emmett Dalton of the notorious Dalton Gang. In New Mexico, he met George Coe and Deluvina Maxwell, who had both known Billy the Kid. How fun. Tom Pickett, who'd had a thumb shot off in the Lincoln County War. Tom, three persons who had been both a Northwest Mounted Policeman and a Texas Ranger. El Fagio Baca, a famous New Mexico lawyer who had once engaged over 80 of Tom Slaughter's cowboys for 33 hours in one of the West's most famous gunfights. <laughs> Can you even believe this list? Yeah. During his years in Arizona, Louis met Jeff Milton, a Texas Ranger and Border Patrolman, and Jim Roberts, and Jim Roberts, the last survivor of the Tonto Basin War, and later Marshal of Jerome. Oh. But perhaps most importantly, during the years he was traveling around the country, young Louis met hundreds of men and women who, though unknown historically, were equally important as examples of what people of the 19th century were like, and especially out west. Right. Louis even had a career as a professional boxer. He had been taught by his father and older brothers, and so Louis made extra money from an occasional prize fight, and in the year just after his family left Jamestown, he often fought in the ring for the money to buy gas so that he could move on. Wow, right? I mean, that's, that's tough. On more than one occasion, a run of luck allowed him to box full-time. Then later as a manager, and finally as a trainer, seeing the world of fighters, managers, gangsters, and gamblers, all firsthand, Louis drew from these experiences for many of the boxing stories in his collection, Hills of Homicide, Beyond the Great Snowy Mountains, Off the Mangrove Coast. Once he struck out on his own, Louis hoboed across the country, and that's what it says in his biography, he hoboed 
I don't know, do we call them hobos anymore? I mean, it's probably transients or whatever, but hobos basically, they jumped on the trains and got free rides on boxcars and that kind of thing. That's the life. That's what I want to be when I grow up. Which had to have been, I mean, a crazy experience all of its own, right? Sure, yeah. Some nights he had to wrap newspapers under his clothes to keep warm Uh, while sleeping anywhere that he could. Good old fuzzy newspapers. Grain bins and even sometimes the gaps in piles of lumber. I've been there. That sounds really comfortable. You have not been there. Yes. He spent three months on the beach in San Pedro, California. And believe it or not, he circled the globe as a merchant seaman sailing to England, Japan, China, Borneo, the Dutch East Indies, Arabia, Egypt, and Panama with the roughest crews on various steamships. And he decided to write Western novels. <laughs> he does have some other novels that I think he uses some of this information. Oh, I didn't think I saw some kind of too. one that was set in some kind of Asian country. Yeah, there yeah. are. And so he does he does use all of this. And he actually boxed between voyages. And he said, quote, I got $25 for my first fight, which back in them days was probably pretty good. But he said his biggest purse was $1,800 in Singapore. I won by a knockout in seven rounds, unquote. In Shanghai, he was once matched with an enormous 250-pound Russian who finally succumbed to a Lamour belly punch. Oh, yes, the good old Lamour belly punch. (laughs) He saw and experienced such a wide variety of things on all of these voyages. He saw criminals beheaded in China, and he biked across India following the trail of Rudyard Kipling's character Kim. Oh, that's funny. He also amazingly survived a shipwreck in the West Indies. He lived with bandits in Tibet and worked as an elephant handler for a time in a circus. Well, shucks. I mean, it's so unbelievable. And it's crazy all the crazy things you can fit into a lifetime, you know. It's really true. He said, quote, There was a time when I could handle myself on the toughest streets in the world. Malay Street in Singapore, Blood Alley in Shanghai, Grand Road in Bombay, District 6 in Cape Town, unquote. In later years, he wrote stories about all of these times, his own experiences, and those of the people that he met along the way. Many of these stories are now published in the collection Yandering and West from Singapore, so that would be one of those, and Night Over the Solomons. Traveling around the U.S. and working in various remote locations gave Louis an intimate first-hand knowledge of the territory and landscape, where the majority of his stories would later be set. He spent time hiking around or traveling through what would later be the settings for Sackett. Oh, I know Sackett. Mm-hmm. The San Juan Mountains of Colorado, Bendigo Shafter, the South Pass area of Wyoming, Shalico, the Boot Heel of New Mexico, Son of a Wanted Man, the Utah Canyon Lands, Taggart, Central Arizona, Mojave Crossing, the California Desert, and Los Angeles, mm-hmm. The Man Called Noon, Central New Mexico, and Southern Colorado, Passing Through, Southwest Colorado, Fallon, Northern Nevada, 
Then you have Mustang Man. That's kind of in the northeast New Mexico. And then mm-hmm. you get into north of the rails. That's New Mexico, Texas, and a little bit of Kansas. And then finally you get into the kind of things that's like the empty land, and that's like northern Utah. Yeah, so, I mean, that's that's the West, and boy, he knew it really well. Yeah, some would say. Some would say intimately. intimately. <laughs> Though he didn't finish his formal education, his family had pulled him out of school when he was in 10th grade, and he never finished it. But he always had just this thirst for knowledge, and all the days of his life, he said when he was everywhere in the country or even in the world he would find himself in bookstores and he would even sometimes go without food in order to afford to buy books and then sometimes he would even work extra long and hard so that he could quit working temporarily to afford to just study full-time. Louis said that from 1928 until 1942 that he read more than 150 non-fiction books a year and that in order to do it he worked miserable jobs and lived in skid row hotels and campgrounds after several years in the pacific northwest louis parents moved to a little farm that their eldest son parker had purchased in oklahoma john had left oregon a year before and had not been heard from since so it was just the three of them who traveled across Idaho, Wyoming, Nebraska, and Kansas to settle, finally, with his parents there in Choctaw, Oklahoma, in the early 1930s. They had a house and animals and some gardens, crops, and their lives kind of returned to normal, and they stopped being the nomads that they had been for a while. The name Louis L'Amour was seen in public for the first time in poetry, which was his first try at writing. He was published, but these publications didn't pay anything at all. He tried writing short stories that drew on his life experience, sending them to college journals or literary magazines. This was not yet the answer to earning a living as a writer either. Finally, he sold a short story called Anything for a Pal to a pulp magazine called True Gang Life. Oh my. He made less than $8, but he took it as a sign and then committed his attention to writing the kind of stories that they would want for the pulps. The hope was for a breakthrough, and it took almost two years. I think you're going to have to explain to me what pulp fiction is. Pulp fiction. It's a genre of kind of racy action-based stories that were published from about 1900 to 1950s, mostly in the U.S. Pulp Fiction gets its name from the paper it was printed on. The magazines that featured such stories were typically published using real cheap kind of ragged-edged paper that was made from wood pulp. And these magazines were sometimes then called pulps. And Pulp Fiction created a breeding ground for new and exciting genres. They had eye-catching covers and dramatic, fast-paced, simple stories that left behind a legacy that can still be seen today in our comics, but also movies, TV, books that feature action heroes and over-the-top villains. All right. In 1937, he sold a short story called Gloves for a Tiger 
to Thrilling Adventures magazine, and this time he started getting other sales. Although he wrote in several genres, including a western or two, Louis's most financially successful stories at this time were the adventure tales he wrote about a captain of a tramp freighter and his crew. Pongo Jim Mayo, Louis's fictional character, was merchant captain whose tendency to find trouble had drawn the attention of a British intelligence officer. Together, Mayo and Major Arnold kept agents of the Axis powers off balance in the years leading up to World War II. Louis joined the U.S. Army in the summer of 1942. After boot camp, he went to Officers Candidate School and then Tank Destroyer School. Did you know there was a thing called Tank Destroyer School? I would pay money to go there. By the time he was eligible to join a tank destroyer outfit, he was ordered to change assignments because with his 35th birthday just over six months away, he would be too old to join a combat unit. Now, doesn't it seem like when you were accepted or eligible to join the tank destroyer outfit that they would know that you were almost 35? I know, that that sucks. So that seemed kind of weird. But interesting though, isn't it, that he was a little older for a lot of the guys that were in World War II. Yeah, I mean, a lot of guys, I mean, they, even though they were later on in life, you know, they, they were still needed, and so that... Yeah, that but rough. he was unmarried still and wanted to go. I'm sure that was really rough on a lot of families, too, because, yeah. you know, they had, you know, either, you know, your fathers or just, you know, guys that were just older that, you know, didn't really have as much of a chance. Yeah. He joined the Transportation Corps and was sent to England and then on to Europe with a trucking company. As a second lieutenant, he commanded a platoon of gas tankers that supplied planes and tanks all through the fighting in France and Germany. Before he returned home, he was promoted to first lieutenant and was briefly a company commander. While in Europe, he gathered more and more experiences and information that he would later use in his stories about that area. It's wild, right? Oh, yeah. Everything that he experienced, not just the the cowboy that I thought he was. After his discharge, Louis returned to the U.S. only to find that the market for his adventure stories had kind of dried up. Now editors wanted mysteries and westerns. And because of Louis's background, an old friend in the publishing business kind of pushed him in the direction of westerns, which was good advice. Can you imagine the Louis L'Amour mysteries? Right? (laughs) (laughs) I guess they probably would have been good because... I mean, Louis L'Amour, but he then moves to Los Angeles, a city that he knew from both of his seafaring and boxing days, and he settled into a small room in the back of a family's large apartment and began to write. He recalled that for the first couple years, he was writing sitting on the bed and worked with his typewriter sitting on a folding chair. Compared to his Oklahoma days, his output was enormous. He was just writing so prolifically. In one year, he sold almost a story a week and wrote even more than that. The pulp magazines, they'd never really paid very well, and that situation was still the same. Louis's average take on a short story was less than $100. But if you're writing one a week, that's pretty good, actually. Yeah, it wasn't terrible. 
By the early 1950s, pressured by radio, TV, and paperback books, the pulp magazines, which had published a majority of the fiction in the United States up to that time, they began to go out of business. Many writers, Louis included, found it harder and harder to sell their stories. So he tried different markets. He sold Westward the Tide to a British publisher, and he wrote four Hopalong Cassidy novels that went to a short-lived magazine, and five stories were sold to what was called the slick magazines like Collier's and the Saturday Evening Post. Louis had already sold several novels, and some of these he even wrote with a pseudonym. He didn't even use Louis L'Amour up to this point. He finally published Hondo, which was really popular, and then a film made from his short story, Gift of Cochise, hit the silver screen. Also, prior to the release of Hondo, he had sold several other projects for movies and TV. And in 1951, a couple of episodes of Cowboy G-Men were made from his work, and he sold a series pilot called One Night Stand to Bing Crosby. Oh my. He also sold a story to Fireside Theater and the treatment for the feature East of Sumatra to Universal International. But it was the success of Hondo that gave Louis' career that much-needed boost. Since L'Amour seemed an unlikely name for an author of westerns, he, up to this point, used pseudonyms until his novel, Hondo, in 1953, became that successful motion picture starring John Wayne. Then it kind of prompted L'Amour to start writing under his own name. Yeah, he only cared about the credit when he was famous. In 1956, Louis L'Amour married Catherine Elizabeth Adams, an aspiring actress. The daughter of a resort developer and silent movie star, Kathy, had grown up in the deserts and the mountains of Southern California, where her father had once owned vast tracts of land. Together, they traveled all over the West, searching out locations and doing research for Louis' books. In 1961, their son Beau was born, and in 1964, they had a daughter, Angelique. In 1959, Louis L'Amour wrote The Daybreakers, his first novel about the fictional Sackett family. These books have been so popular, oh, yeah. made into movies, or at least some... It was at least a TV show. At it? least, yeah, like a series. So good. And it chronicles the story of two brothers moving west to escape the feuding and poverty of the Tennessee mountains. And they join one of the first cattle drives to Kansas and seek their fortunes on the southern plains and finally settle in New Mexico and as they explore the landscape of the West, then of course there's all those themes of friendship and love and the value of an education. The one thing about Louis' books that I saw in an interview that he was saying that he always wanted to make sure that they didn't have a lot of like cursing and like sex scenes, that kind of thing. He said that he didn't think that any author that had to resort to that kind of writing was any good if that's what you had to resort to. I like that. He was talking about if you can write a good story without all of that, then you're a good writer. Well, and I think that's why I kind of, you know, read a, a lot of them when I was growing up too, because you guys were just like, oh, this is, 
this is good. Good, yeah. Good, clean, focused violence, you know. <laughs> focused violence. Yeah, and they're they're exciting, and he can you can have all of the adventure and all of that without all the extra. And so, yeah, it's it's just really good, clean writing. He actually wrote 17 in the series of the Sackets. Did you know there was that many books? I, I need mean, to read them all. I've seen a like like I remember just seeing them on a bookshelf and just being like, oh, well, there's a whole bunch. Yeah. And did you know that he actually intended to write seven or eight more? Oh my. I mean, this guy, he had more information and stories in his head than he could actually write yeah. fast enough. Seems like a good problem to have if you're, you know, a writer in that genre. Towards the end of his life, he actually wrote three books a year. Oh, yeah? And published several a year. Yeah. I mean, still just writing, writing, writing. Yeah. I mean, they're generally, like, shorter books and, like... But they're all just these crazy random, like, stories that, like, you're, like... It would take me, like, you know, years to think of something like that. But he just... Yeah. Just came so naturally to him. And I think because he just had so... All these experiences that he could just think up another story that you know maybe could go with what he had already been through or yeah. what he had seen or people that he'd met and he would just thought ding you know that would be such an amazing story and in addition to pleasing all his millions of fans Louis later won the Western Writers of America's Golden Spur Award for Down the Long Hills which I love North Dakota's Theodore Roosevelt Rough Rider Award his novel Hondo and Flint are voted places in the 25 best Western novels of all time. And five years later, Louis sold his 100 millionth book and had won the Western Writers of America's Golden Saddleman Award. In 1983, U.S. Congress voted him the National Gold Medal and a year later, the Medal of Freedom. Louis' books have been translated into over 15 foreign languages and are sold in English in almost a dozen countries. I mean, you almost just get that famous just by accident, you know? I mean, that's just, that's amazing. Wild, right? Louis loved to collect books, and finally, he had the space and the money to just do that. His private library was supposed to have been to nearly 10,000 books. Your personal library. I mean, I know that we have hundreds of books. Like, no lie. Maybe. But 10,000? Wow. That's insane. And half, again, as many journals and periodicals. And he loved to work out. You know, he was always very athletic, always did all these physical things. And so he would spend several hours a day lifting weights, skipping rope, punching a big heavy punching bag which I saw in different videos him just you know duking it out with his punching bag and he did this first and he had a paved area and a small backyard in Hollywood and then later he had his garage converted (laughs) into a gym and in 1966 he would take his family to spend the summer in Durango Colorado another place he had visited Uh, with a mining buddy in the late 1920s. And for over 10 years, they spent the month of August at the Strader Hotel. Louis dividing his time between writing in a corner room over the Diamond Bell Saloon and hiking in the La Plata or San Juan Mountains. Later years, he participated in the Presidential Committee on Space, 
a Ute Comanche peace treaty, and was on the national board of Library Congress Center for the book. That's awesome. So he had so, so many books. I mean, just wrote and wrote and wrote, and they all... They're all good. They're all out there. They're all good. And... There was a lot that were made into movies. I was looking this up earlier, and there's The Burning Hills, Apache Territory, Hondo, Mm -hmm. Taggart, The Tall Stranger, The Shadow Riders, Quick and the Dead. I love the ones with Sam Elliott or Tom Selleck. Oh, yes, yes, yes. You know... Sam Elliott is always the guy with the big old handlebar handlebar mustache. He's so great. I just love Sam Elliott. Yeah, he's great. And Tom Selleck, of course. The summer of 1987, Louis caught pneumonia. In a few weeks, he threw it off and was seemingly healthy until late fall when he caught it again. Oh, gosh. Sounds a little too close to home right at the moment. The first round of tests showed nothing, but ultimately a needle biopsy caught malignant cancer cells. Going back through the x-rays, doctors discovered a thin veil of cancerous material running throughout his lungs. Because the cancer was not localized in any one spot, surgery was not possible. He began his long, postponed memoir, Education of a Wandering Man. As the disease progressed, Louis moved his work from his office to a desk in an upstairs bedroom, and ultimately into the master bedroom. He was editing the book the afternoon that he died. A few days before he passed away, Louis was notified that the sales of his books had topped 200 million. Since his death in June of 1988, Bantam Books has continued to release the works of Louis L'Amour. Smoke from this altar, his 1939 book of poetry, and a revised version of Yandering were released in the same year. Since then, there have been re releases of the four Hopalong Cassidy novels written under a pseudonym, which, and I have to say that his son said that there were so many revisions that the editors took. They edited so much of it out that he refused to claim these books as his own because they... They just didn't seem like his books anymore. They ripped it apart. And so he was always like, nope, I didn't write those. And so he did write those, but then they kind of messed it up the way he didn't like it. So... Right. I always respected offers that use pseudonyms anyway, because they're kind of just like, I'm just writing a book, but I don't need everybody to know who I am. Yeah, I can see that. In the years since his death in 1988, over 120 million copies of his books have been sold. None of Louis L'Amour's Bantam titles have ever been out of print. Ever? Ever. That gun. His autobiography, Education of a Wandering Man, was published posthumously in 1989. I liked this quote of his. A mind, like a home, is furnished by its owner. So if one's life is cold and bare, he can blame none but himself. Wow. <laughs> that's oh good, right? Oh my gosh. That's, that's deep right there. I think so, too. What we put in our life and in our mind is what we put in it. Yeah. So read some good books. Yes. So, Adele, I was talking to my mom and dad, Grams and Gramps, because they have pretty much read every book that Louis ever written and I mean, probably have most of them at their house. Yeah. That's probably why we've read so many, All the ones too. that I've ever read, I borrowed from her, so. Right. 
And so I said, hey, guys, tell me what you think about Louis L'Amour and kind of how you got reading his books. And so here's what my mom said. I have enjoyed reading Louis L'Amour books for many, many years. I first began reading his work when I was in high school. My dad suggested that I might enjoy this Western author who was writing about the Old West. At the time, Louis had some of his short stories in a pulp magazine called Western Romances. I found that I did enjoy reading about the West and the people who carved out a place for themselves here. As L'Amour began writing novels, I was immediately on board. I liked his characters, I liked their strength, their feeling for the right and the care of others, and each of their stories were so different. The first novel I read was Hondo. Later, Dad and I got Gary reading them, and his favorite book is Hondo. In those days, we were always going to secondhand bookstores and to yard sales where we were able to buy his books for 10 or 15 cents. Over time, we collected nearly all of his works one way or another. Louis L'Amour personally would hike the mountains and trails that he wrote about, and he camped out at these places. He also talked to many old timers. Often in his books, there was a map of the area in the front of the book. He always said if there was a stream in his book, there was a stream there in real life. When Louis began his stories of the Sackett family, they became an instant overnight hit and became one of the favorites of all time. It's kind of funny. We actually named our dog an Irish setter, Sackett. And that's true. I had a big red dog named Sackett. Oh, that's awesome. (laughs) The first Sackett family book was The Daybreakers. Then he later wrote 17 other Sackett novels about various members of the family. So during the pandemic, I decided to get out all of his books and read them again. It was a fun time. Our favorite books are probably way too numerous to mention, but some would include The Key Lock Man, The Daybreakers, Hondo, Ride the Dark Trail, and Crazy Woman Creek. Another favorite of many people is a book that he wrote that was not a Western, and it takes place in modern times with a Native American U-2 pilot being shot down over Russia. It is called Last of the Breed. When he escapes a Russian-Soviet prison camp, it is the story of how he survives the Siberian wilderness to get to freedom. Well, kids, every book is unique and worth reading. For those of you who are listening, try reading some of his work Who knows, you might just like them as well as we have. And that's from my mom, Edith. Oh, that's great. Thanks, Mom. Appreciate that input. And thanks for teaching me to love books and to love stories. And hopefully we can continue to pass that along to our family and to our listeners. Thanks, Dallin, for being here. Yeah. Do you have anything else? No. I mean, yeah. Read some books. (laughs) At the time of his death, almost all of his 105 existing works were 89 novels, 14 short story collections, and two full-length works of nonfiction. We're still in print, and he was one of the world's most popular writers. This was Stones, Bones, and Shadows.
can see photos and more information about the cemeteries we explore and find our sources at stonesbonesandshadowspodcast.com. Also, don't forget to check us out on social media, including Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and even TikTok, where you can interact with us. As always, we love to hear from our listeners. Thank you.